0: Alright, good evening everybody. It's good to see you um, here tonight. If you please turn your Bible to Luke 24. Luke 24. Tonight we are going to be finishing our study of Principles on Prayer from the Life of Jesus and the Gospel of Luke. This has been a six-part study. Tonight we finish our study with Section 6, which is Principles on Prayer from the Ascension of Jesus. Uh, as you recall from uh, the beginning opening verses of Luke. Luke presents his gospel. Uh, presents his gospel as an orderly account of Christ's life that's organized according to themes or topics, um, not so much by chronology. And one of the major organizational themes of the Gospel of Luke is prayer. It begins right off the bat from the arrival of Jesus in the opening verses of chapters one through two. We learned through two elderly couples, Zachariah. And elizabeth and then simeon and anna that god remembers every prayer and he hears every prayer of his children none of our prayers are wasted Uh, they all play a part in god's sovereign redemptive plan and from there on out we we learned lesson after lesson after lesson through this book from the lifestyle of jesus we saw that we must have a disciplined lifestyle of perpetual and punctuated prayer if it was necessary for the eternal son of God to have regular moments of fervent passionate prayer and time alone in God's presence to be able to do his ministry in this world how can we expect anything less we need that same discipline in our lives as well from the ministry of Jesus we learn from his teaching to the crowds in general that prayer is the means through which divine blessings come to us as well as the means by which we pass them off to other by his grace God blesses us with inner strength satisfaction and joy when we pray to him and we bless others even our enemies when we pray for them and then from the mentoring of jesus when he taught his disciples in private we learned many lessons we learned about the priority of prayer if we are to endure trials and expand in our evangelism for the glory of god we learned about the pattern of prayer that everything that we pray for ought to hang off of this desire to see god's honor and god's kingdom to increase We learned about the persistence of prayer, that we ought to argue our case before God based on his revealed will and word. We learned about the protection of prayer, that God loves us and will only give us what is eternally best. We saw the perseverance of prayer, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then finally, we learned from the mentoring teaching of Jesus about the properness of prayer, that times of communion with God is time for everyone, not just adults. Children ought to be prayed for, children ought to be praying. And after that, we saw from the Passion Week of Jesus that prayer uh, was integral to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ those final days before his death in the temple. We saw that we ought to keep prayer's purity, that prayer is an essential part of our church family's worship On the Mount of Olives, we learned during the Olivet Discourse to keep prayer's preparedness if we are to be ready for the Lord's return. In the upper room, we learned to keep prayer's protection because it's only through humbling ourselves in prayer that we receive our daily provisions and protections. In the garden, we learn to keep prayer's passion and peace. In the courtyard, to keep prayer's piety. And then at the cross, to keep prayer's preciousness, that prayer is a privilege bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at the last section, Principles on Prayer from the Ascension of Jesus. And we're going to learn that Jesus' very final words recorded here in this gospel, just before he ascended, into heaven, communicate to us an essential truth regarding the power of prayer. And so with that in mind, before we go any further tonight, let's ask the Lord uh, to bless us as we discover his truth together as a church body tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the gospel of Luke, how it reveals to us the glory of Christ. Father, we thank you for the many visions of his glory that we've seen as we've studied uh, even very briefly um, about prayer in Jesus's life. Father we thank you for the example that he has shown us and we pray that even tonight you would do one last work in our hearts and in our minds so that we would learn how to pray. Father we pray that you would teach us how to pray We pray that you would give us the motivation to do that even tonight as we study these final closing words of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our verses tonight are going to be verses uh, 45 through 53. These take place after Jesus has risen from the dead. And they contain Jesus' final words recorded in this gospel before he ascends to his Father's right hand in heaven. We know that Jesus has more words to say after the ones that are recorded here in the gospel of Luke. Acts 1 records them. But these are the words that our author Luke wants to leave us with. Um, And he leaves us with a lesson on prayer. It's Sunday evening, Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples' minds are blown, but Jesus wants their faith to be grounded, not on what they're seeing and on what they're experiencing, but rather he wants their faith to always and ever be grounded on the word of God. That is, by the way, the explanation to the road to Emmaus. Rather than Jesus just simply revealing himself to them, what does he do? He first explains to them from the scriptures how all of these things that had just happened had to happen according to God's word. And so our faith is not to be grounded on our experiences, it's to be grounded on God's word, and that's exactly what you see here in these closing passages. In verse 45, Jesus opens his disciples' minds to understand the scripture, and he proceeds to teach them that everything that he's gone through throughout his life through His death, through His resurrection, it's all in accordance to the Old Testament. He says in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So that's the message that the whole world has to hear, that there is forgiveness in Jesus' name. This is the message that we're to proclaim. This is the message that the entire Bible preaches, and with their newfound understanding, the disciples finally get it. Their minds are illuminated to the truths of Scripture, and they understand how the Bible fits together and how Christ is at the center of it all. They finally get the message of Scripture and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. So the question is then, how now do we live, right? A tectonic shift has just taken place, and now that Jesus is alive and we understand who he is and what he's done and what that means, then how ought we to live our lives? How do we live life alive in light of Christ being alive? There's two ways that Luke points out for us, and prayers at the heart of both. First, we're to declare Christ's directive, and second, we're to worship Christ's wonder. That's how we live life alive. So first, we're to declare Christ's directive. That's in verses 48 through 49. Jesus says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And you might sit there and say, well, what things are Those, well, we might assume that those things are the things that those disciples have experienced, those climactic events, like Jesus rising from the dead, appearing before all these witnesses, walking beside them on the road, eating a meal with them, with the people from Emmaus, right? We might assume that those are the experiences being talked about, and that those who experience them are to do the witnessing. The only problem is those aren't the things that Jesus is talking about. If you look back at the previous two verses, you'll see that the things Jesus is referring to are the things that are written in Scripture, specifically concerning Jesus and how people are to respond to him. And that makes Jesus' intended audience much broader than just the apostles, right? It includes everyone who understands, everyone who believes, and everyone who has obeyed what God says in his word concerning who Jesus is and how people are to respond to him. That's why nearly everyone gathered here tonight is witnesses of these things. You are a witness of what the Bible says concerning Jesus. And with that understanding comes responsibility. We are the ones that are being called on by our risen Lord to declare his message. To as verse 47 says, proclaim it. Jesus declared it, his apostles declared it, and now we are to declare it. We are to be witnesses of what the Bible says says concerning jesus the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name so this is our great mission this is our commission as believers and and jesus leaves us with that here in the gospel of luke it is to preach christ even as we saw in colossians 128 him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom all the wisdom of god's word that we may present everyone mature in christ so that's our message jesus by his death and victorious life has made the forgiveness of sins available towards all who will, by God's grace, turn to him in saving faith. So the question is, how are we to declare this message? In what manner are we to share it? Jesus shows us in two ways. We're to declare the gospel with derived authority, I would put it, and with dependent power. So first, we're to declare the gospel with derived authority. In verse 47, Jesus says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be suggested. Is that what it says? Look at it. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed. Proclaimed. That's it. Not argued for. Not pressed for. Just proclaimed. Heralded. Authoritatively declared. This word describes the role of a herald who was sent to villages to declare, you know, hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king, right? That's what we're supposed to do with the gospel message. That's the job of a believer. Your job is not to be a salesman. Doesn't Jesus look really good, right? Our job is not to be a debater. Let me prove to you all the ways that you're wrong. Our job is not to be a prosecutor. Our job is to be a witness. To be a herald of the risen king before and beyond anything else. To simply proclaim to the world the truth that the king has come, whether you choose to believe him or not. That he has revealed himself by his life, death, and resurrection. That he now calls all men everywhere to repent. To turn from their sins and trust in him. And that call is to be delivered with authority, not a suggestion. So I just want to remind you of that in your own personal evangelism. Remember that you can you can call on people to trust in Christ. You must. You must. As Scripture says repent and believe the gospel. The king has spoken, therefore believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Submit your life to Christ and be saved. So we're to declare the gospel with derived authority, but most importantly that I want you to see tonight in terms of learning about prayer, we're to to declare Christ's directive with dependent power. Look at verse 49. Jesus says in verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Isn't that interesting? You would think that the disciples had everything they needed for their mission, right? They had their minds opened to rightly understand the Scriptures. And they had the scriptures rightly interpreted by Jesus to correctly understand the Christ. They understood everything that the Bible said about Jesus and the gospel accurately, perfectly, being instructed by God himself. They had a more correct knowledge of doctrine at this point than any Christian who had ever lived. And beyond even that, verse 32 says that these disciples' hearts burned within them. They had more zeal at this point than any Christian who had ever lived. They were equipped with knowledge. They were inflamed with zeal. And so think about that. Knowledge and zeal. What more could you want in that moment? What more do you need? They were excited. They were ready to go. And Jesus says, wait, you don't have everything you need yet. He tells them, don't even think about doing this in your own strength. Knowledge and zeal is not enough. You need power. You need power. Which Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And if you recall, the Holy Spirit came upon them. God's power fell on those disciples and clothed them for ministry. In Acts chapter 2, when they were upstairs on the day of Pentecost, doing what? what? Praying. God's promised power came through prayer. And God's promised power, by the way, was renewed through prayer. On the day of Pentecost, we're told in Acts 4.31 that when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They made sure they declared the word of Christ with dependent power because they understood Christ's message. Mere knowledge and mere zeal are not enough. You need power that can only come through prayer. I can't help but think, looking at this passage, that a lot of the times the impotence that is seen in so many of our lives And the powerless, and it's often seen in so many churches' ministries, spring from the reality that we're ignoring this truth. The truth that knowledge and zeal is not enough for life and ministry even in a church. We need power. And so you have some churches that are on one side of the spectrum, right? Focusing on knowledge, 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 right? Studying the truth. And that's good. We need knowledge. We need the truth. And then you've got churches on the other end of the spectrum that's like, you know, zeal, zeal, zeal. We need excitement and energy. And that's good. We need zeal. God saved us. Christ saved us so that we have a people who are zealous to do good works. So you have churches on one side thinking that the key to gospel ministry is simply knowledge. And then you have churches on the other side of the spectrum thinking that the key to gospel ministry is simply zeal. And both of them are completely missing the point. We need knowledge, we need zeal. No, we need knowledge and we need zeal clothed in power. That's what we need. We need believers to start saying things like this. Not enough is enough. I will not darken the door of another church that does not have an effective youth program. Or enough is enough, I will not darken another door that does not have ministries for my age bracket. We need believers that are starting to understand from God's word, enough is enough, I will not darken the door of another church that is not serious about bringing all of its members together in prayer and is not serious about pursuing the throne of grace. It is not serious about asking God to faithfully clothe and renew the church's members and the church's ministries with power because knowledge is not enough and zeal is not enough. And we need church leaders and pastors to step up and start echoing the words of Christ to their members. Don't think about doing this in your own strength. Knowledge and zeal is not enough. You need power. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, as 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So Jesus is alive. Forgiveness of sins is found in his name. That message needs to be declared, but it needs to be declared with dependent power by every believer into every mission field into which God has called you. And that can only be done as you receive power through prayer. This is what living life alive looks like. It looks like declaring Jesus' directive. And finally, in conclusion, it looks like worshiping Christ's wonder, and that's in verses fifty through fifty three. And what we'll see is that prayer is at the center of this as well. It says in verse fifty, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hand, and lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse fifty two. And they worshipped him. Isn't that interesting? And here was this group of Jews, and they were raised from a very young age. You shall worship the Lord your God alone, right? There's only one God, and yet here they are, all of a sudden, worshiping who? Christ. Christ. They understood at last from the pages of Scripture who Jesus was and what they were supposed to do. Having come at last to know and confidently believe that Jesus was God the Son and Savior of the world, they exploded into worship. Not just with their words, but with their actions. The end of this verse says that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. They were continually in the temple, blessing God. You couldn't stop them. Their worship was undiminished. It wasn't affected by their physical circumstances. It was empowered by spiritual realities. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. And therefore, the rest of their lives were changed forever. They were continually worshiping Christ. They were continually blessing God. And you have to ask, how? Primarily through prayer, <laughs> right? How do you bless God if not through singing and through prayer? Acts 1.14 tells us that they went right back to Jerusalem and they started praying. And you study the book of Acts. The early church never stopped. They were continually doing this. They were continually worshiping Christ and blessing God through prayer. So you see, what I want you to see here is that prayer is at the heart of the final commands that, God, that Christ gives here in the Gospel of Luke. It's at the heart of declaring Christ's directive and at the heart of worshiping his wonder. Prayer is, prayer is at the heart of living life alive. It's at the heart of resurrection living because as we've seen, Throughout the Gospel of Luke, it's at the heart of Christ's life. Prayer is at the heart of Christ's arrival. Prayer was at the heart of Christ's lifestyle. Prayer was at the heart of Christ's ministry, at the heart of his mentoring, at the heart of his Passion Week, at the heart of his Ascension. Prayer was at the heart of Christ's life. And we who are partakers in the life of Christ ought to be marked by the same heart of prayer that Christ was marked by. The same heart of prayer that we see the disciples themselves engaging in at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. This is how we're to live life alive. It is by living a life empowered and impassioned through prayer. So here's the application. Many of us have great challenges facing us for the rest of this week. Others of us have great tasks set before us, or great ministries to perform, fields of evangelism that we must serve in. The call from Christ here at the end of the Gospel of Luke is that we must face them as those who know and have the life of Christ, as those who are living life alive. We must not go as believers into one day we must not go into one act of ministry without first crying out to God to clothe our knowledge, clothe our zeal, and clothe our efforts for His glory with power and effectiveness from on high. And so that, to that end, as a church, as we consider all that Christ has taught us in this gospel, let's review our prayer sheet and let's prepare for prayer. And let's remember our church's ministries as we pray together tonight.